0: Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. Those are the first three verses of Psalm 136, uh, which is the psalm appointed for today, Saturday, August the 6th, 2022. That's an interesting um, uh, psalm. I, I would highly recommend taking a look at it and uh, just saying it out loud because what it does it recounts all the things God has done for his people. So so this would be recited by the nation uh, in a in a liturgical worship setting and, and it would be recalling all the mighty deeds of the Lord. And what I would the reason why I, I want to encourage you to take a look at it and to, to say it out loud is what i what I really think that would be good for us as individuals would be to write our own psalm one thirty six it's it's a it, it, what it will say is is that it'll give a reason and made Israel pass through the midst of it for his steadfast love endures forever, but overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea for his steadfast love endures forever to him who led his people through the wilderness for his steadfast love endures forever to whom who, him who struck down great kings for his steadfast loves forever um, endures forever, to write a personal Psalm 136 would just require you to list a group of things followed by His steadfast love endures forever after each little recitation. And I would encourage you to to make that sort of thing a practice of your daily devotional life, to begin the day with a recitation of all God has done for you, just what what you can recall. But it's also good to write things down so that you don't forget them. And then what you'll find is once you've compiled the list— It'll just continue to grow as he opens your eyes and your heart to see things that you're not seeing at that moment. So anyway, just a, a little um, a mnemonic sort of uh, suggestion for you there. In The uh, the first lesson today is going to be from Judges 9, verses 22 to 25, and then verses 50 to 57. The gospel is going to be from John chapter 2, verse 13 to verse 25. And finally, the reading from Acts of the Apostles is going to be chapter 4, verse 32 through uh, chapter five, verse eleven. So remember here, what we're looking about is um, is Abimelech, who was the son of uh, uh, Gideon by his concubine, who lived in a place called Shechem, which is modern in modern day Samaria. So it, <clears throat> Abimelech decided after the death of his father that he could rally the men of Shechem to support him in in making him their king. Well, no, there, there was no king in Israel. And in fact, Gideon um, rejected the idea of him and his children and his grandchildren becoming king. He completely rejected it because the Lord's king. So Abimelech, obviously, is stepping way out of line by getting the men of Shechem to rally to his support and make him king. And so he then kills 69 of the 70 brothers that he had, and one jotham survived who, who called on the people of shechem to say if you and he's doing it in a way that that harkens back to what moses had the people do back in deuteronomy he had him stand on one mountain mount gerizim and shout um, blessings from mount gerizim and curses from mount Ebal. so if you do this you'll be blessed if you do that you'll be cursed and so what happens in jotham goes to mount gerizim the mountain from which they were blessed and says if you've done this the right way and in good faith, then you'll be blessed. If you haven't, woe be unto you. So he's doing exactly what Moses had the people do back in the day, but he's pronouncing a curse because he knows they haven't done this in good faith, so because they've never had a king. And it's not right for the people of Shechem to make a king. So he knows this, and so when he does this, he's pronouncing a curse from the mountain in Samaria, where those people worshipped, where they believed the blessing was. So Abimelech ruled over Israel three years, and God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. Well, the leaders of Shechem are the ones who put him in the, in the position of being a king anyway. So now there's enmity between them. That He said, they dealt treacherously with Abimelech, that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerubbabel might come, and their blood might be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hand to kill his brothers. And the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him, Abimelech, on the mountaintops, and they robbed all who passed by them along that way, and it was told to Abimelech. And then Abimelech went to Thebes, which is in the same region, and encamped and, and against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city, and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in, and they went up to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire in order that he might enter it. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head. So the, one of the, the stones that would have been used to crush and grind grain, she threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor-bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me a woman killed him. Because that would have been a, a, an enormous blow to him and to his legacy and his legacy is going to be awful anyway but but he didn't want to be killed by a woman well he was (laughs) it doesn't matter i mean how you parse it doesn't matter right and his young man thrust him through and he died and when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus, God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbabel, Jerubbabel being Gideon. So there's enmity now, even at the time of Jesus, there's enmity between the people of Israel and the people of Shechem, Samaria. And that's why, when he meets the woman at the well in John four, that she says, "Are you a Jew, asking me a Samaritan to give you something?" Jews and Samaritans don't share utensils when they eat. If you, if they had, um, if a Jew had eaten of something in your in your hospitality, then you'd have to destroy those things afterwards. The, the the things that the Jew used to eat, and so th- here you see the origin of the separation and the enmity between the people of Israel and the people of Shechem and the people of Shechem, ultimately the Samaritans consider themselves um, religiously superior because they never, they said, we, we never went apostate. They only have the first five books. They only have the books of the Torah and they said they remained faithful. And Jesus um, blows that out of the water when he says, you worship, you know, not what salvation comes from the Jews. So it, th- this is the Genesis of the enmity between the um, the jews and the samaritans that endured through the time of jesus so here abimelech gets his comeuppance for the for the killing of his brothers Um, in the gospel today remember so yesterday we had we had gone we had been with jesus as he went to uh, cana in galilee for the wedding And now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, so Jesus went up to Jerusalem because all Jews who live in the land, the Jewish men particularly, had an obligation to go to Jerusalem. It was a religious obligation that if they were there, then they should be in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. And so Jesus is being obedient to that and goes with the disciples in the temple. He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now we see this cleansing of the temple in the in the synoptic gospels the other gospels Matthew Mark and Luke we see this at the end of Jesus's life. Now we don't know if he did it more than once but but here John puts it early in Jesus's ministry after he's done the very first sign. Of his ministry, and and so here he comes and finds these people, and I've said this, you know, a bunch of times before because it it comes up often, and that is, is that what are these people selling? Okay, so the people who are selling here are selling sacrificial animals that have been, quote, pre-approved by the priests. So you could come as a pilgrim, something could happen to the animal you intended to sacrifice, something could happen to it on the way, and it could become lame, it could become injured in some way that now makes it an unacceptable sacrifice. Or, it could be that, that the priest would judge your sacrifices unacceptable, and it could do that you know, righteously by saying, no, 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 it's blemished, or it could be because he's on the take. Either of those is a distinct possibility, and we know that because—and I'm not slandering anybody because they paid Judas to betray Jesus— and, and they knew that it was wrong because they said, this is blood money. Well, you paid the blood money, but then they wouldn't take it back into the temple. They're willing to pay it out of the treasury, but not willing to take it back in. So we know that, that everything isn't on the up and up. And so here, what you get is, okay, you come to Jerusalem, and you're going to pay premium prices, but you know that it's acceptable, and so you'll be able to properly celebrate the Passover. And so then the money changers are those who were there to take your Roman money and convert it into the, the currency necessary to pay the temple tax. Well, you know, it's, it's a forex exchange, and so there's there's a, maybe a little upcharge on that. And they decide completely on their own what the exchange rates are. So these are this is all profiteering that's going on. So Jesus makes a whip of cords and drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. So he didn't just drive them out. He drove out their goods as well. And then he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And then he told those who sold the pigeons and the pigeon would have been the sacrifice made by the poorest because that that's the way it went in economic prosperity. If you were a poor person, then you could offer a pigeon as a sacrifice. And so here he goes specifically to those people and says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Um, so he's, he's particularly going after those who are, who are more predatory in praying on the poor, so it, there, he makes a distinction in this. He 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 tells them to take those animals away, but he drives the herd-like animals out with their uh, sellers with this whip of cords, and then the the you can't really drive the pigeons out; <laughs> they're caged, so he, they've got to take them out. Is the reason Jesus goes to them, but but, the, but he he goes down to the smallest ones, and and then his disciples remembered that it was written, "Zeal for your house will consume me." So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? How are you going to authenticate yourself? Who do you think you are? That's exactly what they're saying. Now, we know he's only done one sign so far because John told us that. The, The sign was the turning of water into wine at the feast at Canaan in Galilee. Only the servants and his disciples knew that he had done that unless they began telling other people. So they want to know here, who do you think you are to be able to do this? We've given these people permission to be there. So, How show us your authority to drive them out. And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I'll raise it up. The Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days. He was speaking of the temple of his body. Now, this is one of those things they wouldn't have understood at the moment unless Jesus explained it to them. But but his challenge to them is crucify me. And I'll come back in three days. That'll be the sign. You'll get the sign later. In the same way, Moses asked for a sign that he was sent by God to to bring the people out of Egypt. And God says, okay, here's your sign. When when you've done so, you'll worship here on this mountain. So Jesus said, if you want a sign, you've got to do something to bring about that sign. But you're not going to get the sign now. So I'm not giving it to you now, but but I did tell you what it was. I've challenged you in the same way you challenged me. So, and when, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, remember in in John 14 that Jesus promises that if he goes to the Father, then they'll send the Helper, the Holy Spirit, who will bring to remembrance all things that he said to them. Well, not only does the Holy Spirit bring those things to remembrance, it also gives the application and the understanding. It's not just the words that are brought to remembrance, it's the understanding of what Jesus meant when he used the words. So here, that's what they say. When he was raised from the dead, they remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. And we're not told what those signs are, right? I mean, one of those signs was obviously cleansing the temple by running these people out of there. And and, uh, the other gospels will tell us that one of the other reasons Jesus cleansed the temple was because where these people would have set up because of the huge demand created by this pilgrimage feast for animals that they would have been required to take over the what's known as the court of the Gentiles which is the the furthest outreaches reaches of the temple where the Jew or the Gentiles could gather and they could hear the teaching that was going on in the temples and Jesus was would would say that that this my house is a house of prayer for all nations but you've made it into a uh, temple of thieves and robbers so that that's what he's what the the dual nature of him driving them out is he's making a way for the gentiles to be able to worship and and because the work of the messiah was to extend the kingdom of god extend the kingdom of priests and holy nation to the nations and that but so these people who were there people began to believe in his name which means the Lord saves, Jesus means the Lord saves, they began to believe these things, being they saw the signs that he was doing. So these are maybe people from Jerusalem, but but equally likely that there are people who have come to Jerusalem for the festival who are now believing in his name. But Have they, have they committed themselves completely to him? I don't think so. Because <laughs> it says Jesus, on his part, did not him entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Well God's the only one who knows what's in man and that, and that's exactly what what he's saying here. So in the uh, Acts lesson today what we see so so Abimelech comes to kill his brothers in order to achieve power. Jesus comes in order to save his brothers in order to achieve preeminence in the kingdom. So in the Acts lesson now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And as I said, we don't see this idea and this practice persevering in the early church. We don't see Paul commending it anywhere either. It, it's never been a, a commanded way of living. And, and we, you know it, it's pretty obvious here that, that they think this is a one-generation thing, that Jesus is going to come back within their lifetimes, and so property doesn't mean anything. Wealth doesn't mean anything it, because, it, it, you know, this might all end tomorrow. Let's make sure everybody's good today. It, it's a wonderful way of thinking about things, um, but it, it's, it, it was not a sustainable practice and, or a sustained practice, maybe is a better way to say it, nor, nor is it ever taught as the way to live. So, and with great power, the apostles were giving the testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So they weren't making any provision for tomorrow. They decided that owning these lands and everything didn't really matter because, you know, this is all going to go away soon anyway. Let's just go ahead and make sure the community is cared for, loved, and provided for. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, who was a Levite, a native of Cyprus, so he's from Syria, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And so we we meet Barnabas here for the first time. He will later be the one who goes and gets um, Paul and brings him to Antioch after Paul's been sort of exiled because nobody trusts him and he's under some fear of persecution from the Jews. In fact, they could have brought him to death. But so here... We meet Barnabas for the first time, and Luke wants to introduce us to him because it's we've already been told that other people are doing this. Barnabas, though, he singles out because you're going to need to know who he was, and he's already telling us the character of the man that we're going to get to know better in the future. But (laughs) a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge. He kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So the two of them conspired or colluded to not defraud. Yeah, essentially committing fraud, and and Peter's going to make clear that. So Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? I would would assume here that Ananias has made um, profession— that this is the fullness of what he received in exchange for his land. Now, it's a noble thing to have sold the land and brought part of the proceeds, but don't hold yourself out as, as having done something else. Don't lie. And that's what apparently he's done. And Peter sees through it. We don't know how Peter sees through it. We assume it's by the power of the Holy Spirit, that he knows what's in the heart of Barnabas in the same way Jesus knew what was in the heart of a man that it's through the power of the same Holy Spirit that he can see the truth behind this. He said, while it remained unsold, did it it not remain yours? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it you've contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. So he, he has held himself out as being the same kind of man as Barnabas, Joseph, but he's not. He has lied in order to gain something from it, and that would be to gain the acclaim of the community about what a good man he was. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much, for exactly what you said, Peter. But Peter said to her, how is it that you've agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. Now, why in the world is Peter doing this? Did he did was his expectation that they would have died? No, he he wanted them to know and understand that the Holy Spirit was able to reveal all things, and that that honesty actually mattered. That that defrauding inside the the community. Was, was a bad, bad thing. But here Peter says, no, 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 you're going to die too. No, it, it. she fell down and at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her alongside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. These are not people to be messed with. They are not people to be lied to. That the kingdom of God actually has contours and boundaries. That there are certain... Uh, Uh, behaviors that are not tolerated in the kingdom of God and so honesty is clearly the best policy and and it's but it's it's a matter of how do we understand the power of God do we understand the judgment of God we see the judgment of God on Abimelech I mean he was allowed to rule for three years but then it all fell apart and he ends up being killed ignominiously really by a woman the the his his armor-bearer might have struck the final blow but the, the one who killed him was really the woman who threw the millstone on him. And, and so there's this horrific, sort of degrading way of, of dying. And, and he, he thought he avoided it by having an armor bearer run him through, but he didn't. He didn't avoid it at all because we are told the real story about what had happened here. He didn't get to write history because the victors write the history. With Jesus, he, he comes in and, and he deals with sin, here And sin is the the money changers and the sellers of sacrificial animals that he has to drive out of the temple for two reasons. One is they're profiteering on, on uh, pilgrims, honest pilgrims, and then they're also uh, not allowing for the Gentiles to be able to come into the covenant. And so what we're shown here is the new covenant in the New Testament church, it, there's still judgment. There is—sin st- still is judged, ultimately— and it's important that we always remember that the sin actually matters and it matters ultimately